It's Wednesday, November 9th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, could the ballpoint pen be just as responsible for the death of cursive handwriting as the computer? Plus, lab-grown blood has been injected into two patients in a world-first clinical trial. And would you attend a Zoom meeting in a movie theater? AMC is betting on it. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. There's a whole world of things we used to know that we no longer do because technology has made them largely irrelevant or enabled us to look them up so quickly we don't need to keep them in our brains. For example, I used to know all my friends' and relatives' phone numbers. I used to be able to drive to a new place without a GPS. I used to be able to convert temperatures and measurements from metric to imperial in my head. And I used to know what my friends' handwriting looked like. I mean, think about that last one. Do you know what the handwriting of all of your friends looks like? I know several of them, you know, folks that I exchange holiday cards with mostly. But just like I can sometimes go years knowing a person before I ever get their email address, I'm not actually positive what sort of style and eccentricities many of my close friends' handwriting takes on. This was a key revelation of English novelist Philip Henscher in his 2013 nonfiction book, The Missing Ink, as recounted in a 2015 Atlantic article that I somehow stumbled upon the other day. And that article, written by Canadian public school teacher and writer Josh Giesbrecht, makes the argument that it wasn't computers or laziness that killed cursive and which threatens handwriting writ large, but rather the ballpoint pen. And even though the article is seven years old at this point, I think a lot of Giesbrecht's points still stand. First, let's discuss the history of the ballpoint pen and what makes it so different from other pens. Prior to the ballpoint pen, we had the fountain pen. And for anyone who hasn't used one before, the fountain pen has a pointy metal nib that you write with and looks fairly similar to its predecessor, the dip pen. Unlike dip pens, which came with external ink wells, however, the fountain pen has a reservoir within the pen for its own water-based ink. The fountain pen developed in fits and starts perhaps as early as 900s Egypt or 1400s Italy, as invented by Leonardo da Vinci, but didn't really take off until the mid-19th century. The ballpoint pen wouldn't be too far off in its own original patent, but it too took a long time to become popular. Giesbrecht explains that, like with many technological innovations, there were lots of different people working towards a similar goal around the same time. The earliest patent for the ballpoint pen was in 1888 by an American named John Loud. Other patents proliferated over the following decades, but it would be Hungarian journalist Laszlo Biro and his brother, chemist Georgi, who finally cracked it. They realized that the different design of the nib on a ballpoint pen required a thicker ink than what was used in fountain pens. Experimenting with quick-drying inks used in newspaper presses, they eventually hit on the right consistency and design to create a ballpoint pen that barely leaked. This was around the 1940s. Unfortunately, the threat of Nazis in Hungary disrupted the Bureau's business and led Laszlo to flee to Argentina, where he patented the design. The ballpoint pen got the stamp of approval in 1943, when the British Air Force ordered 30,000 of them to solve their need for a pen that would work at high altitudes. And that success led the pen to begin spreading around the world. 
What made it truly ubiquitous, however, was French businessman Marcel Bick, who bought the French rights to it and innovated on a design that was so cheap he was able to drive the price down from $10 per pen to 19 cents a pen. So by the 50s, and certainly by the 60s, ballpoint pens were everywhere. And yet, according to Giesbrecht and others he cites, we never really made the necessary changes to how we write that the change of the utensil required. See, that thicker ink and different nib makes the whole experience different. Most people listening have probably noticed how different it feels to write with a ballpoint pen versus a gel tip or a roller pen. The more liquidy ink in a gel tip and the decreased pressure required to leave a mark on the paper. With a fountain pen, it's even more of an extreme difference. Gisbrecht describes his experience writing with a good fountain pen for the first time. Quote, Its thin ink immediately leaves a mark on paper with even the slightest pressure-free touch to the surface. My writing suddenly grew extra lines, appearing between what used to be separate pen strokes. My hand, trained by the ballpoint, expected that lessening the pressure from the pen was enough to stop writing, but I found I had to lift it clear off the paper entirely. Once I started to adjust to this change, however, it felt like a godsend. A less firm press on the page also meant less strain on my hand. My fountain pen is a modern one, and probably not a great representation of the typical pens of the 1940s, but it still has some of the troubles that plagued the fountain pens and quills of old. I have to be careful where I rest my hand on the paper or risk smudging my last still wet line into an illegible blur, and since the thin ink flows more quickly, I have to refill the pen frequently. The ballpoint solved these problems, giving writers a long-lasting pen and a smudge-free paper for the low cost of some extra hand pressure. End quote. This need to lift the fountain pen all the way off the paper to stop it from leaving marks is part of what makes them so great for writing in cursive, or really makes it difficult to write without some kind of joined-up letters. Ballpoint pens are better for print writing, or non-joined letters. As Gibrecht describes it, quote, Fountain pens want to connect letters. Ballpoint pens need to be convinced to write, need to be pushed into the paper rather than merely touch it, end quote. And more than that, the way ballpoint pens should be held to be most effective is different from that of fountain pens. Giesbrecht refers to handwriting expert and type designer Rosemary Sassoon, who points out that ballpoint pens and other modern pens should be held at a more upright angle to the paper, and that that positioning is generally uncomfortable for the hand. Furthermore, students are still taught to hold pens more at an angle as fountain pens need to be. How we were taught to hold pens never changed when the pens did. Furthermore, the overall design of the pen isn't well designed to our hands. Gisbrecht says that strained hands and wrists, signs of carpal tunnel, started setting in well before most people were typing at computer keyboards, around the time when ballpoint pens became more popular. And Sassoon adds, even though print writing makes more sense for ballpoint pens, it doesn't make sense for general note-taking. If you're trying to write quickly, whether to jot down a note to yourself or to take extensive notes on a lecture, it's much easier to keep the writing utensil on the paper and write with joined letters. The main joined letter writing that we're all taught, or used to be taught, is cursive, specifically the Palmer method, a toned-down version of the Spenserian script from the 1800s. 
But what we really need is a version of efficient, joined letter writing that's better suited to ballpoint pens. Sassoon wrote, quote, Unless we begin to do something sensible about both letters and pen holds, we will contribute more to the demise of handwriting than the coming of the computer has done. End quote. And that makes sense to me. You print writing is not quick or efficient. Cursive doesn't work as well with our modern pens as it did for fountain and dip pens. We need some kind of in-between option. Now, I'd wager a lot of us have developed this naturally, I know I have. Despite spending most of elementary school learning cursive, almost none of my teachers in middle or high school required it of us. In fact, some begged us not to write in cursive because our script was so poor. But I retained those long hours of practicing cursive and continue to write some letters in cursive and some in print, especially if I need to write something down quickly. You know, keeping my pen on the paper is so much faster than constantly picking it up again, whether I'm writing with a ballpoint pen or my preferred rollerball. Fears around the decline of handwriting have been around since the 1960s, according to Giesbrecht. And while that's a while after the emergence of the typewriter, it was still a ways before the home computer became truly popular. So it's not just the computer or even the typewriter to blame for the death of cursive and the decline in handwriting overall. Maybe if we'd updated our methods when we updated our tools, it would have been a different story. For the first time ever, two people have been injected with red blood cells that were grown in a lab. And if successful, this clinical trial could set the stage for lab-grown blood cell use that could be particularly advantageous for people with rare blood types or with blood disorders. Quoting The Verge, the infusions were part of a clinical trial run by NHS Blood and Transplant, which is looking to see how long lab-grown cells last in the body compared with donated blood cells. The trial will enroll at least 10 people, and each will get a few teaspoons of the manufactured blood. A few months later, they'll be injected with the same amount of donated blood so researchers can compare their lifespans in the body. If lab-grown cells do last longer in the body, it could mean people who need regular blood transfusions wouldn't need them as often. That'd be impressive in and of itself, but the trial also lays the groundwork for an even bigger step, creating lab-grown blood for rare blood types that aren't often found in donations. For example, some people with sickle cell disease, a blood disorder that requires regular transfusions, develop antibodies against certain proteins on some donor blood cells. If that happens, they can't receive blood with those proteins. Research teams could theoretically use the techniques pioneered in this trial to produce lab-grown blood without the problematic proteins. End quote. And here's how the lab-grown element works, quoting the BBC. They start with a normal donation of a pint of blood. Magnetic beads are used to fish out flexible stem cells that are capable of becoming a red blood cell. These stem cells are encouraged to grow in large numbers in the labs and are then guided to become red blood cells. The process takes about three weeks and an initial pool of around half a million stem cells results in 50 billion red blood cells. These are filtered down to get around 15 billion red blood cells that are at the right stage of development to transplant. End quote. 
The hope is that the lab-grown blood will be more powerful than normal, hence why people who need regular transfusions perhaps wouldn't need them as often. It could also mean that blood donations could occur in smaller quantities and less often. And while that's good news for recruiting donors, the BBC notes that lab-grown blood will cost their NHS substantially more than the average blood donation. The research team did not specify an exact amount, however. My personal take is that that cost could go down over the years, but it is certainly worth considering right now. And even though the hope is that the blood would be more powerful right now, according to the BBC, the harvested stem cells eventually exhaust themselves, which does limit the amount of blood that can be grown. So even if this clinical trial is successful, further research will need to be conducted to crack exactly how to produce the volumes of blood that would be needed clinically. This trial is a huge breakthrough with an enormous potential of uses and upsides, but not quite there yet. I've talked before about how AMC Theater's CEO Adam Aaron has become something of an investment side of Twitter darling, who seems to be having a blast coming up with all kinds of new schemes to ensure AMC weathers the storm of the pandemic slump in cinema going. Knowing that helps contextualize a bit the company's latest announcement. AMC Theaters has partnered with Zoom to create Zoom rooms inside their theaters. They're billing it as a way to have multi-city meetings. So if for some reason your company has 10-plus employees in multiple cities but doesn't have offices in those cities, you could all come together in a handful of AMC movie theaters and have a Zoom call on the big screen. I mean, in the new frontier of hybrid corporate culture, it doesn't actually sound that weird to me. Maybe it would even be kind of fun, you know, especially since AMC says you can add on concessions and movie screenings to the experience. You know, imagine getting to chomp on some popcorn while you listen to your boss in surround sound. I actually don't know if that sounds good or bad, it mostly just sounds odd. AV Club was decidedly against the idea, writing, quote, It's about time someone figured out how to turn movie theaters into a weird co-working space, and boy howdy, doesn't that sound great. Who doesn't look forward to commuting to their local AMC for a meeting that could have been an email, or at the very least, a quick Zoom meeting from home? End quote. I can't stop thinking about a Tumblr post I saw last night that described movie theaters as, quote, just a box where people go to eat corn. When you think about it that way, Does it really matter what happens in the box so long as you eat corn? Action movie, rom-com, Zoom call, just eat your corn. But AMC Theaters isn't the only partnership Zoom's been working on. At their Zoomtopia 2022 event yesterday, the video conferencing company also announced that Zoom will soon be enabled on Teslas. Quoting Mashable, Natasha Walia, Zoom's group product manager, confirmed that Zoom is definitely coming to all new Tesla models soon. In a short demo, the feature was shown in action in a Tesla Model Y, apparently showing the car's cabin camera, which stands above the rearview mirror, in action for the first time. The car is parked and charging during the call, and if you look closely, you'll see that the Zoom call is accessed from the car's built-in calendar feature. End quote. We don't have many details yet, like whether you'll have to be parked to use the feature, but it's apparently a feature that some have been asking Tesla for since the very early days of lockdown in 2020. 
And I'm not really endorsing this behavior, but I have definitely been on several Zoom calls in which someone was calling in from their car while they drove. So I guess if it can be achieved a bit more safely through the giant screen that already exists in Teslas, as opposed to on your precariously propped up phone, maybe that's an improvement. Or maybe we can just create a culture where people don't feel so pressured to join calls that they have to do it from the road. But that's wishful thinking, I know. Well, two quick follow-ups on those space stories from yesterday. No sooner had I published the episode than NASA announced that the Monday launch attempt for Artemis 1 has been scrubbed, and they will now make an attempt on Wednesday, November 16th. Technically, Wednesday anyways. Like the previous attempt date, it will occur basically in the middle of the night. It'll be 1.04 a.m. Eastern on Wednesday when the launch window opens. So basically just a late night for folks, especially on the West Coast. That is all assuming the rocket and spacecraft aren't ruined by Tropical Storm Nicole. Kennedy Space Center has moved into Huracan 2 status as the storm approaches, but unlike when the rocket and spacecraft were rolled back to the vehicle assembly building ahead of Hurricane Ian, the agency has made the decision to keep them on the launch pad for the time being. And I told you all about the exciting science experiments whose equipment was being delivered to the ISS on board the SS Sally Ride, which did happen, but one of two solar arrays on the Cygnus capsule failed to deploy. So it was a bit more nerve-wracking than usual as the capsule made its way to the space station in the early hours of this morning. All is well, and information has not yet been released about what caused the malfunction, but wow... News moves fast in space. And that's going to be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.